You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Thursday, June 18, 2020. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ed Harrison here in Bethesda, Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C., soon to be joined by Peter Bookvar of Bleakley Advisory Group. But first, let's go to Peter Cooper with the story of the day. Thanks, Ed. The rift between Wall Street and Main Street only seems to grow over time, considering the future risks that the real economy faces. With the unemployment rate still at levels not seen since the Great Depression, and today's initial job loss claims number being 1.5 million claims, it's clear that this crisis continues to reach deeper and deeper into the economy. And as a result, many Americans are either deferring loan payments, have requested forbearance, or are skipping payments altogether. Americans have skipped payments on more than 100 million loans, student loans, auto loans, and other forms of debt. And the number of accounts that enrolled in deferment, forbearance, and other types of debt relief since March 1st and still remain in this status rose to 106 million at the end of May. This is triple the number from April. The CARES Act passed by Congress had automatically placed most borrowers of federal student loans on forbearance through the end of September. The stimulus package also allowed homeowners to request up to 12 months forbearance of their mortgages. With this surge in deferments and forbearance, lenders are experiencing difficulties in deciding to which applicants they should grant loans to. Lenders are saying that applicants' credit scores and reports do not accurately reflect the level of risk they'd be shouldering, since credit reports do not take into account deferment status. TransUnion has been selling data to lenders recently to show who has been affected by the pandemic, which can inform their underwriting requirements. Even so, lenders are expecting to see a lot of delinquencies in the following months. Despite the apparent distress in the economy, stock markets have continued to rally. And many tech startups who have experienced explosive growth in the past few months believe that stock markets have started to stabilize. Consequently, they have an increasing appetite to go the IPO route. Vroom, a startup that sells used vehicles online, is one of those companies. They had record sales in both March and April when dealerships had to shut down. So they decided to go public. In their first day of trading, their stock price doubled and raised nearly $500 million. Another company who also went public is SelectQuote, an online insurance provider. They raised $360 million in their IPO, and their market cap now rests at $4.4 billion. Zoom Infotech is yet another. They raised $935 million, doubling their IPO price. They are valued at $17.7 billion. Warner Music Group priced their IPO at $25 a share, with the goal of $1.925 billion, their valuation being $13.3 billion. Market cap is now at $16.57 billion. Other startup giants are still tinkering with the idea of going public this year too. Airbnb, valued at $31 billion, is considering the possibility. While Palatair, valued at $20 billion, is also planning to file for an IPO soon. Many of these startups though, like Vroom and DoorDash, are still burning millions of dollars and are not yet profitable. In spite of that, these new listings of tech companies are creating excitement due to the acceleration of our collective embrace of tech during the pandemic. This also may be in part due to the immense speculation of Duyad retail investors over on Robinhood and other online brokerages. One thing is for certain, investors are still fanning the flames of these hot markets, and only time will tell when Wall Street and Main Street will finally collide. And with that, I'll hand it back to you, Ed. Liberty sees me 
it stands by me and celebrates me for who I am. When I come into the office, I feel that I belong here. I don't have to be corporate America Gabby. I can just bring Gabby to work. Reach your potential and find a job you love at Liberty Mutual. We offer development training, rich benefits, and a culture that lets you bring your whole self to work so you can pursue your tomorrow today. Ready to consider a career at Liberty Mutual? Find out how at LibertyMutualCareers.com. Thanks for that, Peter. And to another Peter, Peter uh, Bookvar, CIO of Bleakley Advisory Group. Great to have you on. Thank you, Ed. Great to be here. You know, uh, we spoke earlier today and I was telling you that I was thinking a lot about this whole Main Street versus Wall Street thing that we just heard from uh, Peter Cooper. Let me tell you how I'm thinking about it and you tell me how you're thinking about it. This is this is what I was looking at. About two years ago, I wrote a post and it was based off of Hyman Minsky. And I was looking through that post and what I found very interesting about the way that Minsky models uh, how he thinks about the economy is he has this two cost, this uh, this two price system. There's the current output prices that are determined by basically a cost plus markup, you know, that you set a level to generate profits based upon what your cost level, your cost basis is. That's the world of consumer goods and services, investment goods, and even goods and services purchased by the government. But then he he delineates that, separates it almost entirely from a second price system that's for assets that can be held through time. And except for money, which is the most liquid asset, all of those assets are generated, they're expected to generate a stream of income and possibly capital gains. And the important point there is, is, is that the prospective income stream can't be known with any certainty. And so the, what that means is leverage and debt becomes a big factor in terms of dealing with that in order to maximize your return there. There's a whole degree of uncertainty. And so the takeaway, basically, Minsky said, is, is that you can really have Wall Street doing well because of asset prices, because that's a completely different system to Main Street not doing well uh, because of that system uh, being different from Wall Street. And that's where we are right now. How are you thinking about that? Well, starting with like, let's talk about consumer and price inflation. We, we, the average consumer considers inflation when they see the price of the things they wanna buy go up faster than the rate of increase of their wages. Because then they are losing ground. That's when you get negative real wages. People feel like they're getting ahead if their wages grow faster than the price of things, whether it's uh, the price of, of, of utilities or their supermarket bill or the cost of their kids' tuition or insurance and so on and so, and so forth. Where, so there, there, there historically needs to be some relationship between wages and, and the price of, of things that people buy, goods and services. Whereas asset prices of what we've seen, really going back to sort of Greenspan, when he created this asset price dependent economy, where we sort of shifted things around from uh, asset prices, stock prices, start there, reflecting expectations about the underlying economy and what's to come over the next three to six months, and flipping it around where the level of asset prices is helping to determine where the economy goes. So when you have the central bank, uh, whether it's here or anywhere else, price fixing the cost of money to some artificial level, 
And if we think that that is the risk-free rate that then should be used to price assets, well, then it inflates assets. And when half the country doesn't own these assets, well, their net worth doesn't go up with the stock market. Their um, net worth sort of ebbs and flows with their income and subtracting out their, their expenses, which equals their savings. Well, what we've seen is we've seen more of, of people's wage growth going to benefits, particularly healthcare, because the price of healthcare has gone up 20% a year, let's just say that number, for decades. So employers have had to allocate more money to paying employee wages, I'm sorry, employee healthcare benefits, which meant that that came out of uh, potential wage gains. Now, in total compensation, uh, it's, it, it's actually gone up at a rate of inflation or more, but because people don't see the price of their healthcare, if someone else is paying for it, they see their wages sort of stagnating. So that, that is sort of the, the differential. Now, either way, the way that I look at inflation is it's, it's, it's monetary inflation that's created by central banks, and that is the tinder for inflation. We just don't know where that inflation necessarily shows up. Does it show up in consumer prices? Does it show up in producer prices? Does it show up in, uh, as part of that in commodity prices or the price of, of, of antique cars or baseball cards or pieces of art or in stocks or in credit spreads? It, 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 we, we don't necessarily know. You know, Latin America has a history of inflation showing up in consumer prices and less so in asset prices. Well, here we've seen sort of the reverse. Uh, and, 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 and so I don't think inflation is necessarily one thing. A lot of it's in the eye of the beholder. If you're a, a person who's putting money in a 401k who wants to save for the future, well, if you're investing now at very inflated prices, well, your rate of return over the next 10 years could be very subdued. So that inflation is going to hurt you. If you've been going to the supermarket on a on a consumer level, well, you've been paying more for meat and other, other goods. Well, that's going to hurt you. And then on the flip side, there are the other parts of the economy that, uh, whether it's, it's, it's technology, where the price of goods has been falling for 30 years. Right. Well, you know, um, let's, uh, let's dissect where we are right now in terms of why that's occurring. Because I, I feel like uh, today the price action, actually over the last two days, was bringing us back to a level where it's really we're at an inflection point where we're starting to think about uh, now that we've reopened, uh, what's going to happen going forward? So in terms of the real economy, is the real economy going to be able to catch up with the asset uh, price economy? And it's still indeterminate at this particular time. What do you think are the, uh, the pros and cons of the potential for a V-shaped recovery from this point in time? Well, a, a, a V, just by the letter, implies that you get back to where you were rather quickly. And right. January, February 2020 of where we were, and the market assuming, assuming we get back to that level rather quickly. And I just don't see that happening. I think that even if we, we had a vaccine, well, I think a vaccine gives us the best chance of that. but. I still think that this has been such a traumatic experience and so much of a reset that we can assume that even with a vaccine and assuming it comes early next year, hopefully, if we even get one, that um, 
the consumer, to use them as an example, is not going to behave in the same way as they did before. And companies are going to approach their business in a different way as they did before. And that the cost of doing business is going to be higher than it was before, thus crimping profit margins, thus crimping profitability, thus crimping the ability of companies to reinvest in, in their business and hire people. So I think it's going to take years to get to a GDP level at which we had before. So that's what takes away the V. Now we so no V uh, for you, but and and what about asset prices? Are they priced for that V? Well, we we could well we could get a sharp rebound in certain areas. Right. If you need your hair cut, you can assume that barbershops are going to see a V a V recovery because people are going to rush back. They've been sitting at home for two to three months. They need their hair cut, and you can assume that that business is going to get back on track pretty quickly. Where even when a nail salon opens up, that nail salon will probably go back to the same business it was doing before. But then on the other hand, we know certain industries like airlines and sporting events and concerts and 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 even restaurants. That's going to take more time. Uh, but in the aggregate, I think we're in for a, a tough slog here. And also going into this, we know that there are imbalances. There are imbalances on corporate balance sheets. Uh, that is now being exaggerated because there's even more debt that's being accumulated as, as companies try to buy time to get past this. So, and we know the more debt you have, the less growth you're going to have as well. Um, so now to, to where asset prices are, I think stocks have been in the mentality of, of, of I refer to as having a hall pass in the sense that we, we, we clearly understand the decline. And this rebound has been predicated not on where the market thinks the economy or earnings will shake out to be. It's just trading the reopening that we shut down. That's bad. Sell off. Well, we're going to reopen. That's good. Let's buy them right back. Now, you throw in, of course, the actions of, of the Fed and, the, and all these other central banks that's sort of just helping to goose this. But I think that's the mentality. Now, I do think when we get into the probably latter part of July into August, September, that that hall pass expires in the sense that that will be that will give us the chance to look around and say, OK, this is the economy, mostly reopen, mostly because we know concerts and sporting events are not going to happen until next year. But that's when we'll be able to better reassess what's the what's the economy looking like, because show me a bad economic number today. And I could care less. Right. I want to see the economic data after things have reopened, not while they're reopening. I mean, I'm in New Jersey and, and barbershops are not opening until Monday, to use that as an example again. Well, don't show me what business is for barbershops until they until they reopen. So that's that's why the market feels like they have this 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 free pass where any bad news doesn't matter. It's not going to matter again until after things reopen. You know, when you were talking about the differentiation between different sectors of the economy, different companies, I thought that was interesting because right before we came on, I was looking at, uh, you know, which stocks are going to all time highs. And I was thinking about the largest capitalization stocks, you know, the fangs that people are talking about. And it, it was interesting, you know, uh, we, we have Microsoft at an all time high. It's uh, market capitalization is 1.4 trillion. We have Apple at an all-time high market capitalization of 1.5 trillion. Facebook market capitalization of like 700 million. 
Amazon 1.3 trillion. So you, you know you can go on and on about these companies. Google was the, the only one of of that group that I was able to see that wasn't at an all time high. The sense that I get is, is yes, there is outperformance, but when you look at the overall market, the S and P 500, and you take away those stocks, do you see opportunities there, or do you think that the market as a whole uh, is pricing in the reopening uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that's not realistic? Well, if you look at the equal weighted S and P, uh, you know the story is, is quite different. We're still down double digits on an equal weighted basis. Uh, we know the Russell 2000 is still well off its highs. So yeah, there's no question that there's been crowding in these names. I think um, sort of mistakenly thinking that these companies are immune. I mean, Facebook and Google have advertising businesses. They're obviously uh, going to get negatively impacted by this. I mean, you take even Amazon. You know, if, if people are, yeah, they're buying their toilet paper and and their and their uh, other basic necessities on Amazon, but they're not necessarily going out and binging on Amazon when the unemployment rate is 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 twenty percent on an all-in basis. Uh, Amazon for uh, web services still has a lot of small companies. As clients, well, you can assume a lot of small companies are either going out of business or probably spending less. So, but of course, these these are the stocks that have worked for ten years, and they and people perceive safety in them. Underneath that, yeah, I do think that there there are opportunities, but I think time horizon is a very important thing here. So, there are plenty of value stocks out there, but we know value has lagged. I do think value will have its day, but again, it's all about time horizon. You know, there are cheap stocks out there, but when when does that work? I don't know, but I do think when you look at a prospective five to ten year time frame, that the stocks usually that have worked in the prior ten years aren't usually the ones that work in the future and and, and the prospective ten years. Uh, I do think that there's a lot of opportunities overseas, particularly like uh, Asia and and and, and a, I call it emerging Asia. Uh, I think a lot of markets there have lagged dramatically, particularly in dollar terms, where you can look at some of these markets that are no different than they were five ten years ago. So I, I think that in terms of finding investment opportunities, people need to look at the whole world rather than just what's what's in the U.S. Right. And when you uh, talk to clients, what are you telling them about your time horizon and your asset allocation decisions over that horizon? Well, I, I think for those that, that trade and have short term time horizons, you know, you can trade Zoom all day based on 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 the virus numbers and 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 the percentage surveys of how many people want to work from home and how many people are going to go back to the office this you know come fall, uh, but you know you got to pay up for that because it's it's an expensive stock. On the value side, it, again, it's all about time horizon. Now, the the, the ultimate value um, experience is is trying to find that cheap stock just as it starts to find a catalyst and goes higher, but that's always very difficult to do. Uh, you know, Warren Buffett was a great investor, but the one thing that he had more than anybody else was a time horizon, a longer time horizon than anybody else. So he didn't care what happened in, in the next six to 12 months. He was focused on what was going to happen in the next five to 10 years. Now, I know most people watching this don't care <laughs> about what's happening in five to 10 years. They want to know what's happening within the next six months. Uh, but that's or that maybe maybe not. I mean, like what what's your prefer preferred time horizon? given the situation that we're in now because you know when you said to me okay v-shape not going to happen but potentially there's a snapback and then it'll roll off over time back to where we were 
you know, that sounded like, and you said it'll be years, that sounds like a two to three year time horizon. Is that the sort of horizon that you're talking about? Well, uh, I guess for some things, yes. But, you know, I, I tend to get attracted to things that have, have been beaten down and are neglected by investors. So the problem with that sometimes is you're too, you're too early. So to me, I think where the returns are going to be made in the next couple of years are going to be in, in, in Asian markets and commodities. Now, when that switch will occur and you start to see that outperformance relative to the FANG stocks, for example, I'm not really sure. But I know from a risk reward standpoint uh, that I, I can somehow get a, a better sense of my downside when oil, use that as an example, is you know, near $35 to $40 uh, relative if oil was $70 and I would have a lot more downside. So uh, I, I, I want to I give myself two years for an idea to play out. But obviously, I'm hoping it plays out within two days. Uh, doesn't usually happen that way, though. And why are you thinking in particular Asia and commodities? Why are those things that you think can outperform over the medium term? Well, when I look at who had, okay, so let's take the, the, the pandemic. Right. Uh -huh. who, who's better controlled it in the world compared to others? Well, it's clearly been Asia. Now, I, I like to bring up Hong Kong, a city of 7 million people, and putting aside all the, the issues going on there, four people have died. Four in a city of 7 million people because they have learned their experience from SARS, they wore masks. And they wore masks in Singapore, outside of the dormitories. And South Korea, after their flare-up, they quickly got in control. And Taiwan, a, a, a culture of mask wearing. And even China, and, and even Japan, a culture of mask wearing. So I think that their economies will, now, certainly not immune to what's going on in the world, they're certainly suffering, but will suffer less, will take on more debt I'm sorry, less debt as a result. The story in Asia to me for the next 10 years, particularly in China, is a growing middle class. You know, we talk about China and their banking system and all this debt and this and that and, G and, and, and President Xi and all this. But it's the Chinese consumer that I think will be the most exciting growth story over the next 10 years. And anybody who feeds into that uh, will do very well. On the commodity side, I, I think there's been a lot of supply chain damage over the last couple of months. And we're, we're, we've seen it in, in certain spots. We saw it on, on the food side because of, of factories that had to shut down because of the virus. Now, that can quickly reverse itself as people get back to work. But I think it's exposing potential uh, issues on that supply side. Take, take the airline business, for example. We know it, it's going to take a while for these airlines to want to bring back capacity and, and hire back all these, these pilots and the flight attendants. So you can assume that the demand for flying, which I think will continue to grow as, as the months progress. Now, it can take years to get back to where you were prior to this, but you will see that. But you can be sure that airlines are going to take their time in bringing that capacity back. You can be sure with the dramatic drop in oil drilling we've seen that it could take much higher prices to bring that drilling back. And it's not just going to turn back on at $45 a barrel. Or that copper mine is you can assume that that copper company will take their time in, in investing in that business because of the uncertainty. So you are creating, I think, these major supply demand imbalances that will begin to expose itself as global demand continues to increase over the next couple of years. So I do see an inflationary period here. Now, it'll be more cyclical uh, than, than, than necessarily secular. But I do see that being reflected in prices the latter part of this year into next year. And I think there are plenty of commodities that have just been 
ignored for years that have already been beaten down, whether it's silver at $17 that has essentially uh, done nothing for years and is down 70 plus percent from its 2011 high, or it's corn sitting at $3 a, a, a bushel, um, or oil at $38. So when you uh, talk about that, immediately I think about currencies and uh, and bonds, you know, because that's inflationary, and certainly that's going to have an impact on on those areas. Do you have any views on what that means for treasuries, uh, for bonds in general, and then also for different currencies? So I, I think with respect to currencies, and let's look at the dollar. I know a lot of people like to talk about the dollars up or down in right. genius fashion. You know, I really try to 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 break it out. Uh, now, from a secular standpoint, I think these exploding deficits in the U.S. is going to be dollar negative. Uh, there's a history of correlations between the size of a country's budget deficit and the direction of their currency. But to me, the dollar has just been in this 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 five year sort of trading range. When you look at its action against a lot of the the, the other major currencies, I mean, the euro has been trading in a 105 115 range for for five plus years now. And that's in the face of negative rate policy in, in Europe, uh, uh, obviously uh, negative rates out to you know, many years of, 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 of maturity throughout their yield curve, uh, sclerotic growth and, and political issues and all that. And it still trades in that range. Look at the British pound. I mean, yes, it fell right after Brexit, but never really broke down again. And, and, and now it's you know, been trading where it's been trading, the Canadian dollar seemingly trading in a 135, 145 range for five years now. The dollar strength has really been against the, the, the problems with uh, Turkey and, and Argentina and, and Brazil and a lot of these really troubled countries. And um, even the dollar against Asian currency has been mixed. It's been strong against the won. It's been doing nothing against the yen. I mean, the yen has traded great against the dollar. And it's been sort of a mixed bag against other Asian currencies, but trading in a range. So I, I think the dollar doesn't and, – and the dollar's doing this not necessarily because of, of, of what's going on here, but – well, yes, what's going on here in terms of the deficits. But um, I, I don't think the dollar – it's been strong against some currencies. It's been very mediocre against others, I guess, to sum that up. So uh, going forward, given that bifurcation that you're talking about in an inflationary world, uh, will that trend continue? That is the weakness of emerging market currencies and then the relative tra uh, you know, uh, trading range of the G7 or you know, larger countries. Well, interestingly, emerging market currencies have traded great against the dollar over the last couple of months. Right, yes. I'll use in emerging market local currency bonds. Uh, we've seen some good bounce backs in a lot of EM uh, stocks uh, and, and countries. So, uh, I, to address what you said earlier about where interest rates go, you know, we, we know that that central banks are going to be great at, at suppressing short rates, and, and obviously with QE programs doing their best to suppress longer rates. But I, I do think that 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 if I'm right on the inflation side, and again, this could be a, a 2021 story, there is going to be an interesting battle. Uh, between markets and 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 rates. Now, there's this um, not where I should say markets and central banks. You know, there's there, there's this great nonchalance about markets that uh, the, the 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 central banks have everything in control. Right. They're just going to stay low forever. And I, I like to talk about at the peak of the European Central Bank QE, they were buying seven times net issuance. 
at the peak of, of U.S. QE prior to what they've done this year and late last year, we were, the Fed was buying, you know, we're talking about QE1, 2, and 3, they were buying 25% of net issuance. But all that bond buying in Europe, particularly Italy, which is the biggest bond market in Europe, is that due to political worries that we saw last year, that the ECB lost total control of the Italian bond market. And we saw this spike in rates, irrespective of all the ECB bond buying. So I do think markets have the ability of testing central banks. And I do think that if we do get this inflation story, which you add on what I think will be the imbalance between the supply and demand for goods on top of sticky services inflation, and then all this money creation that's been created, I do think we have a chance for markets to test central banks. Now, it'll be more successful in some countries than in others. I mean, Japan has their foot on the neck of rates, so I don't know how successful will it will be there. It may be successful more on 30 and 40-year bond maturities rather than 10 years out in Japan. But I do think there'll be a testing phase that we're going to see, which in a very over-indebted world and, and, and multiples in, in stocks predicated on very low rates, uh, it, it's, to me, it's going to be an interesting tug of war. So we may get past this pandemic. I mean, here's the scenario. We have a vaccine. A growth comes back much quicker. Central banks are going to overstay their welcome with, with their easing. So the demand side is going to overwhelm the supply side. And we're going to have some serious inflation next year. That's the scenario that I see, because maybe I'm just being naive, but I am hopeful that we are going to have a vaccine, that we are going to have effective therapeutics. And that's going to be, so we're going to go from, yay, we've, we've, we've gotten control of this virus, to, oh boy, we are now going to unwind the sovereign bomb bubble, which is the biggest bubble in the history of financial markets. You know, uh, let me play the other side of that. Let's say that we don't get the vaccine. Uh, you said something that uh, really stuck out to me in that about, uh, you know, testing the Fed. And it reminded when you were talking about the ECB and Italy being tested, I thought about uh, Italy's uh, stock market as opposed to their bond market. What happens in a case in which fundamentals actually do matter, as they have mattered in Italy over the past 10 years, uh, if the we don't get that vaccine if we do uh chug along or we have a w-shaped recovery or something of that nature do you think that the fed can paper over the cracks and if so how long can they do so well it, it's it's a very important question because if there's one thing the fed can't do is they can't print cash flow they can't print the cash flow that's then going to use to service one's debt they can't print jobs they can't print business creation. So they can only bail out over-indebted buyers and allow companies to extend and refinance their debt. That's the only thing they can do. So you, your point about the Italian stock market, for all that ECB buying and negative interest rates, the MIB index is still down 50, 50% from where it was in 2007. The Nikkei is still well below where it was in 1989. In fact, the Japanese bank stock index is down 90% from where it was 1989. Not in spite of the BOJ, but because of the BOJ and what mm -hmm. they've done. Right. So I think that the, there's this incredible dependency on the part of US investors that the Fed is going to save us. But they're forgetting that the Fed tried to save the bear market in 2000 to 2002, and that failed. And they tried to save the bear market in 07, 08, and it didn't prevent stock from falling 50% during each occasion. 
So you have to be careful with riding this don't fight the Fed theme because, yeah, sometimes it works, but sometimes it doesn't. Great conversation, Peter. I, I appreciate your coming on at fairly short notice and uh, hope to, uh, to have you back on investment ideas uh, to uh, go through some of uh, your medium-term investments very soon. Thanks, Ed. Great to see you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.